0: We, we are in the middle of this sermon series, actually we've come to the end of this sermon series now on the table, where if you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, we are, um, we've been looking for the last few months at all the places where Jesus ate at the table with people who he loved. With Pharisees, we, we've, we've, we've watched him eat with tax collectors, we've now seen him eat uh, at the table at the, the loaves and the fish. Uh, this, this last week, uh, Brian brought us to the, the place of two disciples, Uh, walking along the road away from Jerusalem, Jesus breaking bread with them so that their eyes could see who he was. And now this morning we come to the last chapter and the last table in Luke's gospel. And uh, I want to open us to that. Luke 24, verses 33 to 53. Luke 24, 33 to uh, to 53. Let me pray for us so before we... We jump in. God, we, we thank you, Lord, for this word to us. We echo the words that we just sung together, that you would open our eyes, God. We know that you have told us this word brings power to our lives. Well, that, that by the, the proclamation of this word, we receive the gospel and the good news, the assurance of your salvation. And so, um, Lord, we just pray, starting now and moving out into the, the valley and then into the nations, that your word would be heard. So, Lord, speak now, for your servants are listening, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's look at this together. Verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, how he was known to them, And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. While they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be reclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God. Amen. So as I said, we've come to this final table, and it's, it's really quite the timely story because you know, of all the tables that we've read in Luke's gospel today over the last few months, I would say this one's unique. And maybe I'm using a little bit of creative license here, but it, it seems to me this is a meal of leftovers. Do you catch that? Look at this in verse 41. Verse 41, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Seems timely. You know, I was uh, reading earlier this week, the average American takes in over 3,000 calories in one Thanksgiving meal. 3,000 calories. That's a half gallon of ice cream. Think about that. As they say, the the real calories settle in, though, is the day after. 79% in a recent poll said they would rather have leftovers than the original Thanksgiving meal. And so maybe I'm reading into this passage with, with turkey on my mind. But we open to this final meal and this time it's not Jesus feeding his people as he had done so many times before in this this gospel account. This time it's his people feeding him. And we've learned repeatedly throughout this series that just like all the tables before it, this table has a purpose. There's a lesson to be found in the details of this passage. And I want to break this down into three parts. First, I want us to look at a unique problem that every believer in this room wrestles with in their life. Second, I want you to see how Jesus offers a solution to that problem that only he can give. And third, then I want us to see a new way of life having reconciled those two. So we're going to look at a problem, a solution, and a new way of life. Okay? You ready? Okay, let's, let's dive in. Let's start with the problem and I don't want to give it to you yet. I want you to look for it with me. Look at this in verse 36. As they were talking about this things, that being the disciples have gathered up and they're discussing the death of Christ and now the firsthand witness to the resurrection that's happened numerous times, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. So he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Did you find the problem? Yes. That's good, Doug. Thank you. See, it, it's, um, we're tracking. It seems to me that as, as followers of Christ, at some point in our walk, at some point along the path, all of us will inevitably face some court kind of season where our faith is tested. Where we find our hearts troubled, wondering, and perhaps even in our flesh, doubting. You ever been there? I would venture to guess maybe some of us are there even this morning. The disciples uh, have just been through a horrid scene. Let's just walk through it together. You know the scene, but let's, let's think about this. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, so who can we trust? Jesus is mocked. The, the, their leader is, is, uh, is uh, uh, tried. He's publicly shamed crown of thorns, smashed on his head, the whip on his back, he's crucified then, cries out to the Father in agony, died, and buried. And most of these, these disciples couldn't even show up. They weren't even anywhere near that cross. As Brian shared with us last week, suddenly there, there's, there's these two that seem to be leaving Jerusalem, almost as if they're, they're on the run. The risen Lord appears. And amid this uncertainty, Jesus now comes before all of his disciples. This is really the the first time you see Jesus before the church. And we're told he suddenly stood among them. Which you would think, just that appearance would bring all the faith in the world, right? But they're gripped with this doubt and fear. And Jesus has two specific questions, both directly aimed at the disciples to address this problem. He says, why are you troubled? That's the first question. And why do doubts Arise within you. Timothy Keller recently published a book called uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. If you haven't picked it up, I'd encourage you to, to look at it. It answers the age-old question of why would God allow suffering and pain to happen in my life? And Keller's wrote this, uh, this study in the midst of his own cancer and kind of dark season of the soul. And on the pages of this book, Keller explains... How, from his perspective, today's church has gone entirely soft when it comes to enduring trials. He says this is especially notable if you look back over the history of our world. And Keller talks about how in medieval Europe, for instance, one in five infants died before their first birthday. Think about that. Only half of all children survived to the age of 10. One in five died in their first year. Only half made it to 10 years old. You know, today we live in this high-tech bubble, right, where where sterile hospitals take care of all the illness, and well-kept funeral homes, they take care of all the death. We sort of stand back at arm's length. We have no context of that kind of suffering and death up close. Look at what Keller writes. He says, The life of our ancestors was filled with far more suffering than ours is, and yet we have innumerable diaries, journeys, and journals, and historical documents that reveal how they took that hardship and grief in far better stride. He goes on to say this, if they could see us, they'd be shocked by our softness, our worldliness and timidity. Why are you troubled, Jesus asked. What is a doubt that has arisen within you? Let's just ask this just for clarification as we, we unpack this story. When you think about what's just happened in this text, why do you think the disciples were so troubled? What was it that caught them off guard and made them so soft and wondering, troubling in that moment? You know, there's a number of possibilities. First, it could be the PTSD from the last week with all the torture and death. It seems fair. Or you might say, well, contextually, it was probably the confusion of this this seeming ghost standing before them, this man standing in their midst out of nowhere. But I think more than all that, the reason biblically that they were troubled, it seems to me, was that they doubted. They're startled and frightened because they doubted the resurrection. This can't be real. This has to be a ghost. And therein lies the problem. The problem that every believer comes face to face with at some point in our walk with Christ. That is, how do we maintain our faith in the midst of hardship, adversity, and trial? That word troubled in the Greek, it's the same word used in Matthew 14, 26. And you'll remember the story where the disciples saw Jesus uh, walking out on the sea in this this storm. And they're on the water, the winds are howling, the waves are crashing, and suddenly they see this, this man glistening in the distance. And though they can tell it's it's likely Jesus, they can't make sense of the situation. Men don't walk on water, right? And Matthew tells us they were troubled, same word, terrified, shaken. It's crazy how, how many parallels there are between that story and this one. Jesus called Peter out onto the water. Peter looked at the waves, began to sink. Jesus said, Why are you doubting? See, this is really no, not some like novel challenge for the church. This is a commonplace problem for us. Fear, troubled hearts, doubt. Maybe even you believe that Jesus is with you, but, but when life hits hard, it's, it's difficult now to struggle in faith. What could God possibly be up to? And in many respects, you know, doubt has become so commonplace in our secular culture. Skepticism has become so commonplace that that it's bled now into the church. And we've come to see it almost as a good thing. Right? It's good to doubt. Let's wrestle together. But we forget this grieved Jesus' heart. Right? Let's be clear about this story, right? This is not settling well with Jesus. Why Why are doubts... Arisen in your hearts, he asked him. You've seen my miracles. You've watched my teaching. I told you this would happen. We just had the last supper together. And you're dumbfounded. I think it's too simple for us to be okay with doubting. It's good to doubt. Certainly we could say that. But don't leave it there. To let that issue fester among the body of Christ. And Jesus seems to offer at least one step in the the opposite direction this morning towards faith. There is a solution to this elephant in the room. It's kind of multifaceted. We'll start here. You know, at first, Jesus immediately, you'll notice in the text, he offers several proofs to his disciples that you would think would settle the skeptics in the room. And he covers his base as well. I mean, he's going after all the senses. He says, look, see, it's me. Do you see my hands and my feet? And as I said, you know, then Jesus asked for some food, some, some leftovers. And at first glance, you might think, well, that's an odd request. The disciples are freaking out, losing their minds, anxious, troubled. And Jesus says, let's eat. Maybe Jesus was just hungry, but I, I feel like what he's probably doing here is proving that he's not a ghost. Ghosts don't eat fish. He says, touch my flesh, You know, much like doubting Thomas, touch the wounds, this is real. Look at this in verse 39. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. How many times in troubling moments in our faith do we think to ourselves, man, this would be so much easier. My faith would increase so much more right now if I could just see Jesus. You ever thought that? I know I have. God, if you would just reveal to me the plan, just lay it out. That would certainly help me get to the end game. And I think it's so simple, right, to put our faith in something tangible, we think. My family and I were up at the swinging bridge up in Kootenai Falls last last summer. Kootenai Falls, I should say. Have you guys been there? Anybody been there? If not, make it your bucket list. It's an incredible place. Um, But as the name says, uh, the swinging bridge, just the name sketched me out. We walked up to this, the cliff of this bridge and, and you could see it was pretty well constructed, right? The girls kind of took their first steps. Jen followed behind and I'm looking at the railing and thinking, okay, yeah, we can, we'll, I'll let them go ahead first. <laughs> but think about this with me. If I walked you up to that bridge and I said, here, you can feel the railing, you can see the hardware, maybe watch a few people walk ahead of you. You know, this to easier to trust in that swinging bridge, Right? But if I walked you up to that bridge, I put a, a blindfold on you, and you could hear the wind howling over the cliffs. You could hear the feel the, the breeze and the the, the the waves beneath you. And I said, "Here, we're going to walk out onto this, this swinging bridge. It's a little more difficult to take that step, right?" See, if you buy into that with me, this begs a, a real question: How come the disciples are standing before the risen Lord? tangibly seeing and experiencing him risen from the dead and yet still disbelieving and marveling, as our passage says. They've seen, they've touched, they've, they've heard. Look at this in verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they said to them, he said to them, let's eat. You know, at this point, you can see there's some joy in the room. Maybe there's like, this disbelief is transforming. So maybe there's a point to all this for them to get it. But they're still not there, right? We, we still haven't found the full solution to this problem. I mean, I feel like this is like the model of every atheist or agnostic in the world. If I could just see it, if you could prove it to me without a doubt, if I could watch it right before me, full proof, I'd be all in. You'd get me. And yet here the disciples are, the disciples still struggling in faith. The risen Lord standing before them just as he said he would. So if that doesn't do it, what's what's the solution? Years ago at an amusement park in California, there's an entire ride full of kids that got stuck 150 feet up in the air. It was nighttime, it was chilly out. The fall, Knott's Berry Farm, I think it was, when the firefighters arrived, they quickly realized they were outmatched. There was no ladder in their fleet that was going to get that high. And so they worked with mechanics. They couldn't get the ride to come back down. So with no other option, they climbed up to the top of this ride, threw ropes down, and decided they were to rappel down to the kids. Of course, that left a massive step that still needed to be done. And that is to convince the child to unbuckle their seatbelt and connect to your rope. The fire captain... Knew this was going to be an issue. He he was being interviewed by the the media afterwards, and he said with every single child, he and his team took the same approach. He said they would come down and open their, their helmet up. They said they would look directly into the child's eyes, and they would tell them as calmly as they could, trust me, your life is precious. This rope is trustworthy. It can hold a bus. I'm going to have you down before you know it. Now look again at our passage. Look at how Jesus overcomes the trouble and the doubt. Look at this in verse 44. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And here's the solution. Here's the main point. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. See, as Jesus is chomping on this broiled fish, he now shows them from the very beginning how all of God's word has pointed to him. He brings them on this Bible study, right, to walk them through what is the threefold division of the Old Testament. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, and with one story at a time, he begins giving the disciples these proofs by God's holy word of who he is. See, it's by the proclamation of the gospel that we find hope for the believer. That's the solution. Look at how Jesus does this in verse 46. He opens the scriptures. He says to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, that in repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to his name in all the nations, beginning with Jerusalem. And now they see the greater plan. It's by the proclamation of his word that the disciples finally understand what it is that's taking place before them. And notice what Jesus didn't do here, right? Jesus didn't just toss them a scroll of Isaiah and said, here, you figure it out. Now we're told he opened their minds to the meaning of the scriptures. He's discipling them. He's teaching them. He's guiding them, helping them see what maybe they didn't see. Now if there's one area for the church where I'm convinced we can do better, it's right here. You know, we assume in a biblically illiterate culture that A once a week sermon is enough. The preacher gets, what, 25 minutes if he's feeling long-winded, 30. And then the rest of the week, we receive messages from the world that tell us all the other things in our lives, lies. And yet the way that Jesus modeled this, right, the command that he gave us is to teach one another. Go and make disciples, he said. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. That brings salvation for those who hear it. See, the problem is that in all of our lives, our faith will be tested. It's not an if, it's a when. And that's what makes faith faith, right? All of us will find a season or seasons in our lives where we find ourselves troubled from within, frightened, maybe even doubtful. And the solution, it seems to me, is a greater understanding of God's word. And if you think that's reductionist, if you think that's, that's, that's way too simplified, ask yourself, how well do I know this word? How well do I understand God's plan? See, here's the reorientation that that brings, right? The new way of life that, that comes with that. Problem, solution, new way of life. Look at this in verse 48. Jesus said, you are now witnesses of these things. Because once you know, you know there's no going back. See, this meal of leftovers, it's a sending meal. There's this final table at Luke's story. It's a commissioning table. There's two kind of witnesses in Luke's gospel. If you open up to the first chapter, it talks about an eyewitness, the autopi in the Greek. That's someone who has first knowledge of an event, and they watch it, they hear it, and they they might report on it if they're asked. But then you come to the, the last part of, our, of the gospel and you, you see Jesus talk about a witness here and it's a completely different Greek word, martus. That is someone who has not only heard and seen something firsthand, but they're also charged by that party to pass the knowledge onward. They're a reporter. Jesus says, go and be that witness. He says the repentance and forgiveness of sins It'll be proclaimed to all the nations with or without you. That's God's plan for his word to go forth. That's that's why we call it good news. It's meant to be shared, passed on. And not just information transfer, right? But it's now ours by the Holy Spirit to help others understand the meaning of God's story of redemption. I've been asking this of leadership circles in the last few months and I'll ask it of you this morning. Who is discipling you? That word is a deep river, right? Some of the smartest people on our planet are still digging into the word, trying to figure out more and more of its meaning. Who is it in your life that's still helping you do that? And conversely, the second part of that is, who are you discipling? Who are you passing the word on to? The things that you understand about your faith, who are you sharing that with? Focus on the family shared a story a few weeks ago about a man a few months ago about a man named Al Braca. Al worked in the, new trade, uh, the World Trade Center most of his life and he hated his job, just loathed it. He hated the commute, he struggled with the worldliness of the business. But despite him suffering, he was always faced with this reality that he couldn't leave. He couldn't explain it. He told his wife he had prayed about it and he felt like God had been calling him to say she would press him on it. Maybe you should just find something else. He said, no, I, I feel like I'm supposed to be a light in that place. On 9-11, Al lost his life on the 105th floor of Tower One. And his wife, Jeannie, talked about how she wondered aloud for months what his last moments must have been like. Dying in a place that you loathe so much. Months went by. She began receiving emails and phone calls from the loved ones of Al's coworkers. They said when the plane had struck below their floor, Al knew it was dire. The situation was horrid. So he stood up in the room and began preaching to his friends, doing all the things you typically wouldn't do in the office. And with this calm, reassuring voice, he called on them to pray with him. And his coworkers, the reason their loved ones knew is they began making these last phone calls home and they reported to their spouses and the parents that they had known, their children, that everything would be okay. They said this man, Al, had shared the gospel with them. One of them reported that over 50 people had hit their knees giving their lives to Christ. So, you are now witnesses, Jesus said, with that same sense of urgency. And not just witnesses alone, but ones whom Jesus said he was sending the promise of the Father. Look at this in verse 49 And behold, I'm sending this promise. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You know what that promise is? It's the gift of the Holy Spirit, the one in whom the word is inseparable. And Jesus says, by that Holy Spirit, your way of life is entirely reoriented, completely repurposed, transformed in Christ. You are now heralds of my good news. And note this with me. By the end of this chapter, by the end of Luke's story, the fear and the trouble and the doubt is now changed into worship and joy and blessing. Look at this. While he blessed them, he parted from them, was carried up to heaven and they worshiped him. They returned with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Friends, the problem that all of us have to wrestle with, all of us come face to face with is that we will inevitably find times in our lives where we are faced with trials and struggles and temptations and doubt. The answer, the answer is we need a better understanding of God's word and his plan for our life. And then when we do, it brings us to a new way of living the gospel. No sooner than the book of Acts do you see these same men who were terrified, shaken, now proclaiming the gospel with thousands falling on their knees. As my mother used to say, you can be a part of the problem or you can be a part of the solution. Pray with me. God, you've told us by your very word that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So Lord, we thank you for that gift that we so often take for granted that we can hear your word proclaimed to us. That we can receive it with joy. That we can trust it to be true. And so Lord, we just call out and shoot down the, the skeptical thoughts in our minds, Lord. Lord, God, the doubts and the wandering and the wavering. God, and we just confess again that you are sovereign. You are all powerful. You are almighty. You are salvation. You are sovereign. And Lord, you are with us still. And God, we proclaim again with all the saints who have gone before us that there will be a day when your son is coming again. So Lord, we pray, would you renew the faith in us God, we believe, would you, would you help us with our doubts? God, we pray, would you make this real to us? Help us to think about someone who we can share the things that we've learned with and pour into their lives, Lord. And we, we look for that person as well who can continue to pour into us because we know this world is far too lost for us to go out into it alone. So God, we pray, send us Make us witnesses of your good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.